1: in a storm he is thrown far from home and his very existence is in doubt castaway by arthur c clark that's next on the lost sci-fi podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode in the uk in 1938 a new magazine appeared fantasy would publish an issue that year and to the next and then disappear. It reappeared in 1946 with three issues over the next two years, and poof, it was gone again, this time for good. Our story appeared in the April 1947 issue, but it was credited to Charles Willis. Almost 20 years later, it reappeared in a collection of science fiction stories called Strange Signposts. You'll find it on page 303, Castaway, by Arthur C. Clarke. The storm was still rising. He had long since ceased to struggle against it, although the ascending gas streams were carrying him into the bitterly cold regions, 10,000 miles above his normal level. Dimly, he was aware of his mistake. He should never have entered the area of disturbance but the spot had developed so swiftly that there was now no chance of escape. The million-miles-an-hour wind had seized him as it rose from the depths and was carrying him up the great funnel it had torn in the photosphere, a tunnel already large enough to engulf a hundred worlds. It was very cold. Around him, carbon vapor was condensing in clouds of incandescent dust, swiftly torn away by the raging winds. This was something he had never met before, but the short-lived particles of solid matter left no sensation as they whipped through his body. Presently, they were no more than glowing streamers far below. Their furious movement foreshortened to a gentle undulation. He was now at a truly enormous height, and his velocity showed no signs of slackening. The horizon was almost 50,000 miles away, and the whole of the great spot lay visible beneath. Although he possessed neither eyes nor organs of sight, the radiation pattern sweeping through his body built up a picture of the awesome scene below. Like a great wound through which the sun's life was ebbing into space, the vortex was now thousands of miles deep, From one edge, a long tongue of flame was reaching out to form a half-completed bridge, defying the gale sweeping vertically past it. In a few hours, if it survived, it might span the abyss and divide the spot in twain. The fragments would drift apart, the fires of the photosphere would overwhelm them, and soon the great globe would be unblemished again. The sun was still receding, and gradually, into his slow, dim consciousness, came the understanding that he could never return. The eruption that had hurled him into space had not given him sufficient velocity to escape forever, but a second giant force was beginning to exert its power. All his life he had been subjected to the fierce bombardment of solar radiation, pouring upon him from all directions. It was doing so no longer. The sun now lay far beneath, and the force of its radiation was driving him out into space like a mighty wind. The great cloud of ions, it was his body, more tenuous than air, was falling swiftly into the outer darkness. Now the sun was a globe of fire, shrinking far behind, and the great spot no more than a black stain near the center of its disk. Ahead lay darkness, utterly unrelieved, for his senses were far too coarse ever to detect the feeble light of the stars or the pale gleam of the circling planets. The only source of light he could ever know was dwindling from him. In a desperate effort to conserve his energy, he drew his body together into a tight spherical cloud. Now he was almost as dense as air, but the electrostatic repulsion between his billions of constituent ions was too great for further concentration. When at last his strength weakened, they would disperse into space and no trace of his existence would remain. He never felt the increasing gravitational pull from far ahead and was unconscious of his changing speed. But presently, the first faint intimations of the approaching magnetic field reached his consciousness and stirred it into sluggish life. He strained his senses out into the darkness. But to a creature whose home was the photosphere of the sun, the light of all other bodies was billions of times too faint even to be glimpsed, and the steadily strengthening field through which he was falling was an enigma beyond the comprehension of his rudimentary mind. The tenuous outer fringes of the atmosphere checked his speed, and he fell slowly towards the invisible planet. Twice he felt a strange, tearing wrench as he passed through the ionosphere. Then, no faster than a falling snowflake, he was drifting down through the cold, dense gas of the lower air. The descent took many hours, and his strength was waning when he came to rest on a surface hard beyond anything he had ever imagined. The waters of the Atlantic were bathed with brilliant sunlight, but to him the darkness was absolute, save for the faint gleam of the infinitely distant sun. For eons he lay, incapable of movement, while the fires of consciousness burned lower within him and the last remnants of his energy ebbed away into the inconceivable cold. It was long before he noticed the strange new radiation pulsing far off in the darkness. Radiation of a kind he had never experienced before. Sluggishly, he turned his mind towards it, considering what it might be and whence it came. It was closer than he had thought for its movement was clearly visible, and now it was climbing into the sky, approaching the sun itself. But this was no second sun, for the strange illumination was waxing and waning, and only for a fraction of a cycle was it shining full upon him. Nearer and nearer came that enigmatic glare, and as the throbbing rhythm of its brilliance grew fiercer, he became aware of a strange tearing resonance that seemed to shake the whole of his being. Now it was beating down upon him like a flail, tearing into his vitals and loosening his last hold on life itself. He had lost all control over the outer regions of his compressed but still enormous body. The end came swiftly. The intolerable radiance was directly overhead. No longer pulsing, but pouring down upon him in one continuous flood. Then there was neither pain nor wonder, nor the dull longing for the great golden world he had lost forever. The long pencil of the radar beam was sweeping the Atlantic to the horizon's edge. Spinning in synchronism on the planned position indicator, the faintly visible line of the time base built up a picture of all that lay beneath. At the moment, the screen was empty, for the coast of Ireland was more than 300 miles away, apart from an occasional brilliant blue spot, which was all that the greatest surface vessel became from 50,000 feet. Nothing would be visible until, in three hours' time, the eastern seaboard of America began to drift into the picture. The navigator, checking his position continually by the North Atlantic radio lattice, seldom had any need for this part of the liner's radar. But to the passengers, the big Skyatron indicator on the promenade deck was a source of constant interest, especially when the weather was bad. And there was nothing to be seen below but the undulating hills and valleys of the cloud ceiling. There was still something magical, even in this age, about a radar landfall. No matter how often one had seen it before, it was fascinating to watch the pattern of the coastline forming on the screen, to pick out the harbors and the shipping, and presently the hills and rivers and lakes of the land beneath. To Edward Lindsay, Returning from a week's leave in Europe, the planned position indicator had a double interest. Fifteen years ago, as a young coastal command radio observer in the War of Liberation, he had spent long and tiring hours over these same waters, peering into a primitive forerunner of the great five-foot screen before him. He smiled wryly as his mind went back to those days. What would he have thought then, he wondered if he could have seen himself as he was now, a prosperous accountant, traveling in comfort ten miles above the Atlantic at almost the velocity of sound. He thought also of the rest of S for Sugar's crew and wondered what had happened to them in the intervening years. At the edge of the scan, just crossing the 300-mile range circle, a faint patch of light was beginning to drift into the picture. That was strange. There was no land there, for the Azores were further to the south. Besides, this seemed too ill-defined to be an island. The only thing it could possibly be was a storm cloud heavy with rain. Lindsay walked to the nearest window and looked out. The weather was extraordinarily fine. Far below, the waters of the Atlantic were crawling eastwards towards Europe. Even down to the horizon, the sky was blue and cloudless. He went back to the PPI. The echo was certainly a very curious one, approximately oval, and as far as he could judge, about ten miles long, although it was still too far away for accurate measurement. Lindsay did some rapid mental arithmetic. In twenty five minutes, it should be almost underneath them, for it was neatly bisected by the bright line that represented the aircraft's heading. Track? Course? Lord, how quickly one forgot that sort of thing. But it didn't matter. The wind could make little difference at the speed they were traveling. He would come back and have a look at it then, unless the gang in the bar got hold of him again. Twenty minutes later, he was even more puzzled. The tiny blue oval of light gleaming on the dark face of the screen was now only fifty miles away. If it were, indeed, a cloud, it was the strangest one he had ever seen. But the scale of the picture was still too small for him to make out any details. The main controls of the indicator were safely locked away beneath the notice which read, Passengers are requested not to place empty glasses on the Skyatron. However, one control had been left for the use of all comers. A massive three-position switch, guaranteed unbreakable, enabled anyone to select the tube's three different ranges, 300, 50, and 10 miles. Normally, the 300-mile picture was used, but the more restricted 50-mile scan gave much greater detail and was excellent for sightseeing over land. The 10-mile range was quite useless, and no one knew why it was there. Lindsay turned the switch to 50, and the picture seemed to explode. The mysterious echo, which had been nearing the screen center, now lay at its edge once more, enlarged sixfold. Lindsay waited until the afterglow of the old picture had died away. Then he leaned over and carefully examined the new. The echo almost filled the gap between the 40 and 50 mile range circles. And now that he could see it clearly, its strangeness almost took his breath away. From its center radiated a curious network of filaments, while at its heart glowed a bright area, perhaps two miles in length. It could only be fancy, yet he could have sworn that the central spot was pulsing very slowly. Almost unable to believe his eyes, Lindsay stared into the screen he watched in hypnotized fascination until the oval mist was less than 40 miles away. Then he ran to the nearest telephone and called for one of the ship's radio officers. While he was waiting, he went again to the observation port and looked out at the ocean beneath. He could see for at least a 100 miles, but there was absolutely nothing there but the blue Atlantic and the open sky. It was a long walk from the control room to the promenade deck, and when Sub-Lieutenant Armstrong arrived, concealing his annoyance beneath a mask of polite but not obsequious service, the object was less than twenty miles away. Lindsay pointed to the Skyatron. Look, he said simply. Sub-Lieutenant Armstrong looked. For a moment there was silence. Then came a curious, half-strangled ejaculation and he jumped back as if he had been stung. He leaned forward again and rubbed at the screen with his sleeve, as if trying to remove something that shouldn't be there. Stopping himself in time, he grinned foolishly at Lindsay. Then he went to the observation window. There's nothing there. I've looked, said Lindsay. After the initial shock, Armstrong moved with commendable speed. He ran back to the Skyatron unlocked the controls with his master key and made a series of swift adjustments. At once, the time base began to whirl round at a greatly increased speed, giving a more continuous picture than before. It was much clearer now. The bright nucleus was pulsating, and faint knots of light were moving slowly outwards along the radiating filaments. As he stared, fascinated, Lindsay suddenly remembered a glimpse he had once had of an amoeba under the microscope. Apparently, the same thought had occurred to the sub-lieutenant. It looks alive, he whispered incredulously. I know, said Lindsay. What do you think it is? The other hesitated for a while. I remember reading once that Appleton or someone had detected patches of ionization low down in the atmosphere. That's the only thing it can be. But its structure, how do you explain that? The other shrugged his shoulders. I can't, he said bluntly. It was vertically beneath them now, disappearing into the blind area at the center of the screen. While they were waiting for it to emerge again, they had another look at the ocean below. It was uncanny. There was still absolutely nothing to be seen. But the radar could not lie. Something must be there. It was fading fast when it reappeared a minute later. Fading, as if the full power of the radar transmitter had destroyed its cohesion. For the filaments were breaking up. And even as they watched, the ten-mile-long oval began to disintegrate. There was something awe-inspiring about the sight. And for some unfathomable reason, Lindsay felt a surge of pity, as though he were witnessing the death of some gigantic beast. He shook his head angrily, but he could not get the thought out of his mind. Twenty miles away, the last traces of ionization were dispersing to the winds. Soon I and radar screen alike saw only the unbroken waters of the Atlantic rolling endlessly eastwards, as if no power could ever disturb them. And across the screen of the great indicator, two men stared speechlessly at one another, each afraid to guess what lay in the other's mind. Next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, what really happened to the traveling salesman and the farmer's daughter? And why? Here's the ultimate horrifying answer. Jokester by Isaac Asimov.
0: Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.